Hi, I'm Kirsty Gallagher, and this is Give Us Your Goals, the podcast which finds out how some of the biggest names go about achieving their dreams. In this episode, I speak to the humanitarian campaigner and best-selling author Terry Waite, whose life changed forever in 1987 when he was captured and held hostage in Beirut. He was there to negotiate the release of several hostages, but ended up being held captive himself for more than four years. Since his release, Terry has written several books, including Taken on Trust, an account of his time in captivity, and he became a patron of a number of charitable causes. In our conversation, Terry tells me he was always motivated to try and help those less fortunate than himself, but also by more selfish reasons to see whether he could beat seemingly insurmountable odds. And he explains why he thinks every tragic event can sow the seeds for good things in the future. Give Us Your Goals is a paid promotion by online investment platform, Best Invest. Terry, welcome to Give Us Your Goals. It is such an honour to have you on to speak to you. Before we talk about sort of, uh, I suppose, the later days and all the rest of it, I want to go right back to your when you were younger, because you had dreams, didn't you, of being a grenadier guard. Just talk to us about that and why, why that was. Well, I suppose um, that I had to go in those days to the for national service. And I decided that um, I might as well do three years, sign on for three years. So I uh, applied and went to the recruiting office and was immediately accepted for the Grenadier Guards. I suppose also it was a desire to leave home. It was a desire to probably see the world. I had little idea what I was letting myself in for. It was a pretty strict and uh, disciplined form of uh, experience. But Okay, it was it was it was good. It was uh, something I look back on and don't regret doing. Although I doubt whether I do it now again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine how tough and difficult it w- would have been. I mean, but it wasn't for you. That wasn't your life. I mean, when was it that you decided I need to evaluate what I'm doing, and it's not really my vocation in life? Well, I've always had a, a sympathy in, in life for. Those who are on the margins of life, you know, the homeless, the prisoner, and so on. And it's only fairly recently that I have come to realize why that might be. Um, my father was brought up during the years of the Depression, and they were very hard years. His father's business went bankrupt. My father had to leave home to find work and was homeless uh, himself for a while and lived under very, very difficult circumstances. And I think this, in some ways, you know, his, this must have transmitted itself to me and given me this care and concern for people who find themselves in that position. And so uh, at a fairly early stage, I, I decided that I'd like to live my life in a way that brought some benefit to other people. Uh, that sounds terribly idealistic, I know, but that, that's that's genuinely what I felt. I'd often been asked to go into the church to become ordained, and that wasn't my vocation. But I did work from a church base, and I was joined an organisation called the Church Army, 
And in that organization, I was able to have three years education, three years logical education, and then launched out uh, into the into the world. So, Terry, what age were you at this point? And and were you? It sounds like you were already sort of setting goals for yourself. You knew what you wanted to do, that you wanted to help people in in, in dire situations. Often, what what age were you? I was in my twenties, in my early twenties, and that's when I made 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 those decisions to get on with life in that particular way. But I had no idea where where it would take me. And I often had to live with really quite considerable anxiety and uncertainty because um, for much of my life, I, I've worked independently. I was uh, seconded from the church army to work in the area of education in uh, Bristol, in the west of England, and then <laughs> changed course completely. And I was married at the time with uh, young children and decided that I'd go out to Africa and work in Africa. And I became an advisor to the first African Archbishop of Uganda. And those were tough days because it was in those days that Amin came to power, General Amin came to power. And one lived right through the Amin years, which were very, very hard. First time in my life I'd seen people killed before my eyes. And many of my friends and colleagues were thrown into concentration camps in around Kampala. I used to visit them. And it opened my eyes to some of the brutalities of this world. And yet uh, I did what I could to, again, try and alleviate suffering and try and help people in their best development. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you are incredible what you've done, your work. And actually not just seeing people die and the suffering of others, Terry, that you have. You also, you and your wife have escaped, narrowly escaped death on, on several occasions. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how that impacted your life? Well, I mean, on several occasions, we'd been out for a meal, we were driving home, and uh, my wife said, we're being followed. And I said, well, okay, we'll drive home quickly. And our house was up a slight incline and we'd left the garage doors open. We could drive into the garage and close the doors behind us and get into the house. So I drove up the drive and the wind had blown the doors through. I had to stop the car and a car pulled up behind us. Armed men jumped out and they were shaking, you know, they were shaking because I'm pretty sure they were high on some form of narcotic. And uh, they said, hand over the keys. And if we hadn't have done that, we'd have been shot. I mean, a friend of mine, who uh, a lady, said, oh, if that happened to me, I'd throw the keys away. They wouldn't get them. And it did happen to her. She did throw the keys away, and she was shot and killed. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> and this was, that was the first time. The second time, oh. we, we, were dro- we were driving into Kampala. We drove into a car park. And I was taking some guests to to a meal. They all got out of the car, and I was just parking it. And then I heard one of the guests say, "Get out! Get out! Get out!" And I looked around, and there was another man with an arm with a machine gun pointing at me. And uh, 
I realized I was being, again, taken, you know, the car was about to be taken. So I jumped out again, and that was it. There's the car gone. So that was two Peugeots in about a year, and that's what happened in, in that part of the world. Mm. I mean, the horrors, the horrors you're describing, the horrors that you, you, you've seen and experienced. I mean, you had a young family, you had your wife, you, you, you were there. I mean, how did you keep going? Because also, I, I'm just wondering, you know, <laughs> juxtapose what you were doing, which was incredible helping people, to what you could be doing at home, which was quite a normal, possibly live, financially. I, I would love to know how, how did you sort of, I, I suppose what I'm saying to you, you could have had quite a normal, comfortable life, but you kept going and you put your life on the line how did you how did you do that i mean what what was inside of you and well, i think it was a determination to get on with with my life and with the with with the work out there and a recognition that there were far more people in much worse condition than i was you know people who had no medical help people who lived out in the bush i mean i, I trained my successor in the job i was doing there you know, we built his first house. An extremely able man, but he had no resources whatsoever. And I just always used to say to myself, "Think yourself lucky." I mean, you know, I've got I've got resources. I've had some form of education. Those of these people had nothing, and I just felt obliged to get on with it. But I think, you know, I think when, and I firmly believe this too. Nobody should ever run away with the idea that I'm full of altruism. Because I think when you do something for other people, you're actually consciously or unconsciously doing something for yourself. Of course. And I think I was doing something for myself, probably trying to prove myself that I've got the strength and that I could defeat these odds. I think there was that to it as well. So it's not just all altruism at all. You're doing something for yourself as well. And I don't think there's anything wrong in that, providing you acknowledge it, you know, providing you recognise it. Mm, of course. And at this point, with with a young family and, and in the situation, you were you were tirelessly working, helping people and communities. Were you were you also thinking about your situation as a family and how you were going forward, planning for the future? Was that sort of in the back of your mind, or was it was it something that wasn't really part of your of the way you thought then terry it was always in my mind and i i look back on it and i recognize that i really did feel at times quite acute anxiety you know anxiety for the children a recognition that i had to keep going for their sake if you like make sure they got a reasonable education proper education and a, pro- a decent started life and um, when you're working independently, as I was, you know, that's, that puts a strain on you and a pressure on you. But looking back, I distinctly remember those years of feeling that anxiety. And I think many people today will feel that, particularly at the time, you know, economic crises, when they have a mortgage and a family uh, to bring up and wondering how they're going to pay the bills. I've been through that experience. And somehow you just put your head down and you get on with it. But there are dangers along the way, you know, dangers of falling into 
ways of escaping, like many people fall into alcoholism or what have you. And often it's a result of the, of the pressures that are on them. And in, in my work today with the mayors for the homeless, you know, I see so many people who've had very responsible positions and who have fallen into these, these traps, problems of alcohol and what have you, and lost everything. And I, I was conscious that it can happen to anybody. It can happen to the best of us, you know. And this is where we need support, mutual support of each other. We need good people to stand by us and with us. I've been fortunate to work with good people across my life. And just tell us how then, just going back, and, and we will talk a bit more about what you're doing now. You you were the assistant for the Anglican Communion Fairs for the then Archbishop of Canterbury. That was Robert Runcie. That was back in the 1980s. How did that come about? And then, of course, you were you were then negotiating to release hostages. Just tell us a little bit in a nutshell about how that came about and how difficult that was. Well, what, what had happened was that I, I've been working all around the world. I've been based in Rome. We, we moved to Rome and I lived with my family in Rome for seven years, traveling all over the world and working in pretty well every troubled spot of the world, uh, working on the development of health and education, the development of programs to promote good public health. And uh, the, the Archbishop got in touch with me because he wanted somebody on his staff who had a knowledge of international affairs. I'm not a clergyman, as I said earlier. I had no desire to be a clergyman. I, I, I remain as a layman. But he invited me to join his staff, travel with him to arrange his diplomatic exchanges, his exchanges with heads of state, with heads of churches, and so on. So I, I, I took, took that up. Uh, no idea at the time that um, we'd be so inundated with hostage issues. And, and I was not employed specifically at all to deal with hostages. But what happened was that needy people came to Lambert Palace who'd suffered as a result of having a friend or a, a, a relative or uh, taken hostage and asked for help. And it's always been my belief that if anybody turns to the church for help, if the church can give it, it should, regardless of whether that person has religious belief or not. That makes no, it should make no difference. And the first people that came to Lambeth Palace were people who had their relatives captured in Iran. And so uh, they came and said, can you help? And I said to the Archbishop, I think we ought to help. And I said, I think I ought to get out to Iran and see what I could do. <laughs> the typical, uh, oh. you know, just say, right, okay. So he said after a while, okay, all right, fine, see what you can do. I'd never been to Iran before. So I got to Iran, was able to establish contact with Revolutionary Guard, was able to get into that notorious Avene prison uh, where Nazarin Radcliffe was kept and others, and get uh, see uh, a hostage there called Gene Waddell, and cut a long story short, was able to obtain the release of all hostages, seven or eight of them, without payment and without false exchange. And that was through making a relationship with Revolutionary Guard. I mean, and I, I was able to use, you know, what negotiating skills I developed over the years, going way back to Uganda. 
And part of that was to try and understand one fundamental question, which is to really get to the root of the issue and to ask why are people behaving as they're behaving and try and find a way of undoing the problems and getting people out of an impossible situation. Sort of at the root rather than just going, oh, well, they're bad people. There is a reason for that. Exactly. I mean, within every hostage organisation, you have psychopathic individuals. But by no means are they all like that. I'll give you one example. Leaping ahead a bit, when I was captured later on, other hostages had very bad food for, for a long time. And they complained about it, and nothing happened. And then one day the headman came to see them, and he said, what are you getting? And he told him. And he said, well, he said, that's, uh, that's not right. He looked into it, and he discovered that the guard who was getting the food was given money to buy food, had pocketed half the money and used half on food. So they took that young man out and they shot him. Because they said, if you will behave like that for small things, if someone comes along with a big bribe, you'll give the organization away. And what it's uh, saying is that young people who have had little in life very often, or who've maybe in some instances come from reasonable backgrounds, but nevertheless, have always been bottom of the pile, economically, politically, every way. A charismatic individual comes along, says, join this organization. For the first time in life, they get a sense of identity and purpose. And once they're in, they're in. There's no escape for them. They're caught. It's the same dynamic, really, that operates in drug gangs up and around the country we see today. Same dynamic. And... So one has to recognise that you're dealing with a whole complex range of motives to try and understand and work. Not in any way does that mean to say that I agree with hostage taking, of course I don't, nor do I agree with wrongdoing. But I think you have to ask, why is it that people get into these situations? And not everybody is, as I say, a psychopathic. Where you come across psychopaths, of course, very little you can do to negotiate with them. And I've experienced that too. It's so fascinating to, to hear your, your story. And I mean, you, you negotiated with, in 1984, it was Colonel Gaddafi that you, you were negotiating with him for the release of four British hostages. They were held in, uh, in Libya, weren't they? I mean, how was that a frightening experience? with what we knew about that man and, and, and what he'd done and what he continued to do? No, it wasn't frightening, really. It was, I mean, one was always apprehensive as to what might happen. But uh, uh, the reason I got to see him, actually, was very interesting. I mean, I had no idea how to get in touch with Gaddafi. But at the time, there was the Organisation of African Unity, the president of which uh, was uh, Julius Nyerere who was then president of um, Tanzania. And so uh, we phoned him up and said, can I come and see you? And he said, come down at the weekends <laughs> to Tanzania and uh, met Julius Dairari in his, in his house by the lake and said, look, do you think you could help me? Do you think you could get me a meeting with Gaddafi because of president of IU? He said, well, he said, I'll try. He said, but he's a very unusual man. You, you may have no luck. 
We did try. Within two weeks, I was in Libya meeting with Gaddafi in his tent. And there's a nice, rather nice picture, actually, of myself meeting Gaddafi in his tent. I'm six foot, or was six foot six there. <laughs> and it shows me bowing like that. <laughs> it looks as though I'm paying obeisance to him, but in fact, <laughs> The truth is I couldn't stand up straight in the tent. In the tent, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Anyway, oh. I, I, got, I got on all right with him and was able to, again, negotiate the release of people and bring them up. And incidentally, the very day today we're making this, uh, having this conversation together, the son of one of the hostages is phoning me. We keep in touch. Some of one of the hostages whom I got out and he said, you know, that whole experience, this, this lad says, changed my life, and it changed it for the better. So, you know, good things can come from hostage situations. Not, not, it's not, not every, everything doesn't have to be negative. And that's true in life, too, you know. You can face tough situations, but I've always believed this, that within every tragedy, within every seeming tragedy and difficulty, often there are seeds of something new and creative, if you look for them. And um, I talk about that a little more when I, about if we go on to Beirut. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. I mean, I, I remember your work so well. I remember everything as a, as a youngster. I remember the shock and the horror of when you were kidnapped and held captive in 1987 till 1991. I mean, I, I remember it so vividly, Terry. Would you mind talking to us about that and how, you know, you, your life then from <laughs> releasing hostages, you, you ended up being one yourself? And, and, and yeah, Well, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to get involved in another hostage negotiation from Lambeth. And I was persuaded because uh, people kept coming back to me and said, look, you've done this in the past. Can you help us here? And I, I was reluctant because it was terribly politically complicated. And I knew that it was going to go on for a long, long time. And I thought, well, if I commit myself to working for these families, I've got to stay with it. I can't leave it when the, if the going gets tough. I've got to stay with it through to the end. And I got, we got other work on at Lambeth. This wasn't my main job. I mean, we're arranging visits to China, arranging visits to Australia and all that sort of thing. I had to go out to these places. However, I, I took it up, was able to establish contact again. Uh, with um, Hezbollah and have uh, conversations with them. And then things went wrong politically. First of all, I was able to assist in the release of a couple of hostages. And then, uh, because there was a political breakdown, uh, the people that I was talking with in Lebanon uh, mistakenly thought that I was an agent of um, foreign intelligence. And so they decided that they would capture me and see what I knew. And so instead of a hostage negotiator, I became a hostage myself. First of all, I was put in an underground cell, uh, just a tiled cell, and I was angry. I mean, things. I was really angry because I'd been promised safe conduct. They'd promised me that I could go and see a hostage who was about to die. And I said, if I come with you, you'll keep me. And they said, no, no, you don't. And they did. And they broke their word. And so if you're angry, you have to do something about it. I mean, I didn't eat for the first week. And they said, if you don't eat now, we should make you after the first week. And by that time, I got my anger 
under control. And just as I, I wrote a poem about anger, it's very short. I said, anger is like a consuming fire seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames closely, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. Which means really, you know, it's a force which is there within all of us. We all get angry and you never get rid of it completely, but try and turn it creatively. Use yes. the power that's generated by anger for some constructive use. Because if you don't deal with anger, it will do you more harm than those against whom it's held. So anyway, I got over that. And then I had almost five years in complete solitary, sleeping on the floor, chained to the wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day, one visit to the bathroom, no books or papers for about oh, three and a half years, no companionship, no one to speak with, no natural light. So it was, um, you know, it was quite a retreat. <laughs> oh, oh, Terry, honestly, I can't. I can't even imagine what what you've been through. I mean, how how did you? I mean, well, there are lots of questions I'd like to ask you. I mean, firstly, did you think you were going to come out alive? Do you did you think no, this is it? Oh, it definitely. I thought it was it at times because I had uh, I was um, beaten on the soles of the feet with cable, and then I had um, a mock execution. I was told I had five hours to live. At that point, I was pretty exhausted, and I just lay on the floor and I slept, believe it or not. It was a way of escaping, I suppose, the harsh realities of the day. Then they came into the room and they took me into the next room and said, I was blindfolded, and I stood there and I got conscious of the fact there were many people in the room who said, do you want anything? I said, yes, I'd like a drink. For the first time in my life, my throat had gone dry because of fear. Not fear of, of death as such, but fear that how would I die? That was the fear. So they brought me a drink. Anything else? I said, yes, I'd like to write some letters to my family and friends. They said, you can write one letter. So looking beneath the blindfold, I wrote this one letter. Is there anything else? I said, yes, I'd like to say a prayer. They said, you can. I said the Lord's Prayer. Then they said, uh, turn to the wall, turn round. So I turned around and I felt cold metal at my forehead. Then they dropped it and said another time. And that was it. That was the end of the first year, actually. But then I uh, had to spend another almost four years in, in isolation. And so looking back, I have to say, to be perfectly honest with you, now, I wonder how I managed to live that, you know. I don't know how you did. I mean, how did you keep... Well, there were two things, two things looking back on it, I think helped. One is living for the day, yeah. recognising that now you have life and live it as fully as possible in, this, uh, in the day that you have. That's not easy when you've nothing. But the other thing is keep your mind alive. Keep your mind moving. But just before coming to speak with you this morning, I was talking to somebody who's had severe stroke and who's incapacitated, you know, because obviously because of stroke. But I said, what you can do, you'll still be able to use your mind. You'll still be able to write. You'll still be able to talk. 
unfortunately had lost, lost speech. So, you know, there are, the secret is keeping your mind alive. I wrote my first book in my head when I was in captivity. I used my imagination. I traveled in my mind and I was determined to keep alive in that way. Now I've seen people who in dire circumstances, difficult circumstances, have just shut off and fallen into despair. And they fall into mental illness very often. So those things, that, that's, I think, how I helped, helped me anyway to survive that experience. You also had your, obviously, your wonderful family who you wanted to, you wanted to see them again. And, and that would have been an incredible sort of... But I had no of... contact with them. No. There was no contact. I had no news of the outside world at all, apart from one postcard I got. I got a postcard. A guard came in and he dropped a postcard by my side. And it was a picture of John Bunyan in prison in Bedford. Bunyan was in prison many, many years ago. And he had his own clothes and he had a pen and pencil and so on, bed and ink, and was looking out of the window at the city of Bedford. I thought, what a lucky fellow. He's got everything that I haven't got. And on the back, it said, don't give up. Many people are thinking of you. And my, the address to which it had been written had been obliterated. But the name was there, someone called Joy Brodier. When I came out of captivity, I uh, thought, I must find that lady. So I made a, I, when I was doing a radio broadcast, I said, will the person who sent me the onion car, please get in touch. And someone called Joy Brodier phoned me. And I said, look, Joy, I said, where did you send that card? Because thousands of cards were sent to the embassy or to the Red Cross. Not one of them got through, but this one did. She said simply, oh, I sent it to Terry Wade, care of Hezbollah, party of God, Lebanon. And it got through. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm still wow. in touch with Joy this day, so years later. Yeah. Wonderful. And I just wanted to ask you, I mean, when you were in, I mean, just very quickly before we talk about your release and afterwards, when you were in captivity, Terry, did you see, obviously you saw a lot of unkind acts uh, you told us the way you were treated did you see any kindness did you see any any of those characters around you were could you could you see that they weren't doing what they wanted to do do you do you understand what i'm saying i mean did you ever see any any kindness any empathy for you or was it that you were very much on your own how did you how did you feel there well there was there was some kindness yes i suppose but they were under strict orders you know I mean, I used to say to them, for example, does it not say in the Quran you mustn't steal? They said, no, no, we mustn't steal. I said, how is it you steal my life? You know, you steal me from my family. They said, we'd better go and ask the chief about that. So a week later, they came back. I said, what did the chief say? He said, the chief said, we mustn't talk to you anymore. Oh, right. So that was that. <laughs> not a great answer. <laughs> All these lads are under strict, strict orders. Once they're in the organisation, it's not. I did actually have a chance to escape. I can just tell you about that. Yes, please. Please, yeah. I mean, I got one visit to the bathroom a day. And one day when I went in there um, uh, and took my blindfold off, the door was just pulled to. There was a, a, a weapon on the top of the system. And I looked at it. It was an automatic. I mean, 
I thought to myself, quick as a flash, and thought, what shall I do? I could have taken it and shot my way out. And then I thought to myself, what have you been saying? In all your negotiations, you've always said to people who've engaged in terrorist organizations, if you're in a tough situation, don't use violence, use your brain. And you know, my words coming back to me, you know. And so, uh, quick as a flash, I called the fellow back and said, you've left something. Quickly came in and t- took it away and went away. Now, again, I often wonder, was that a trap where they tried to test me? I don't know. I shall never know. But I don't regret. I mean, I cannot say. Who could say that they've always behaved correctly all through their life? I wish I had. I haven't. Of course, I've made my fair share of mistakes. But having said that, at certain points in your life, there comes a time when you have to say, I've got to stand by what I believe, otherwise I'm a total hypocrite. And there are certain times when you do have to stand up for what you believe. I was able to do it on that occasion. But again, don't think that I've always done it. I haven't. <laughs> what, a, what a story that is. And, and just quickly, I, I mean, just tell us, obviously, how your release came about and, and how you felt after five years of being a hostage and, and your life being taken away from you, really. How did that feel to, to, to be released? Well, simply this, when I came out, you know, it was, it took, it took a while to get adjusted to things. I mean, I made a speech at Lynham, uh, the airbase, which was my signing off, really. And then went to meet my family and get back into life. And it took, it took a while. I, I've always described it in this way. When you come out of an experience of trauma, Take it as though you're coming up from the seabed. If you come up too quickly, you get the bend. If you come up gently, you'll be fine. Now, I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate, because I was elected to a fellowship at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And there, I could have a room. I could sit down as I sat down with a, a blank piece of paper and began to put on paper that which I'd written in my head in those years of captivity. Incredible, yeah. And that was a way of actually coming to terms with the experience, getting back into relationships with people, and taking my taking it step by step. And it was a, a good way of getting back to my family. I lived in college in the week, middle of the week, and went home at weekends. That was it. It worked worked well. Gave myself time. But then it changed. It changed my life because. I decided then, having always had a salaried occupation, I thought, no, no, I've been through this experience. What I'm going to do now is give my life to the organizations like Hostage International, the Mayors for the Homeless. I'm not going to take any money from them. I'm going to earn my own living by writing and lecturing. And I didn't know whether I could do it, but I had, I thought you've been through that experience Surely you can do that. Had I not been through the experience of difficulty, I doubt that I'd ever have the courage to set out alone in that way. And, well, that was 30 years ago. I'm still still surviving. I'm now 83. I'm still keeping going. Your work is just something else. And, and I just wanted to quickly ask you, when you came 
when you were released, you did write your book, Taken on Trust. And and I wanted to ask you that that was, I'm sure, a very your one of your first steps that was very cathartic, Terry, uh, and, and would have helped you uh, massively. And then, you know, from then on, you, you've written more books, you lecture, you educate. It's all helped you, hasn't it? I, I'm sure in some sort of therapeutic way. It's always, you know, there's always something to be taken from adversity. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people are now going to face a pretty difficult winter, a pretty difficult year. And I would not underestimate that, not for one moment. And I wouldn't underestimate the difficulties. But all I can say is, don't be defeated by them, you know. Don't be defeated by them because often within them, there are the seeds of, as I said a moment ago, of new opportunities. And you maybe then discover within yourself resources you didn't know you had. That's what happened to me in captivity. I discovered, if you would say to me before that, you're going to be five years alone sitting on the floor, I thought, oh God, no, I couldn't face that. But never know until you experience it. So don't give up. Keep optimistic as far as you can. And also, you know, I've been lucky in my life to work alongside good people people with whom I could trust. For five years, I had to be right on my own. But I knew they were there. They were there supporting me. And the more you can work with good people and have good people, supportive people around you, the better. And just finally, my question I'd like to ask you is, is which is always difficult to ask, but I, I think I know the answer is, what happened to you, your your being held in captivity for those years, the horrors you've seen, the way you were treated. In a way, are you glad it happened because you've been able to live your life fully and use that experience to the best of your ability now? Well, all I can say is, you know, one takes one's life as it comes. You have ups and downs. You can't relive it. But what you can do is hopefully take one or two lessons from what you've been through and turn them to be for positive end rather than saying, oh, you know, of giving up. Keep moving, keep moving forward, keep moving optimistically. And yes, in one sense, I, I don't regret the experience. I wouldn't want to go through it again. I certainly wouldn't recommend it. But from it, so much good has come, and so many people I'd want to be able to help and have benefited from having that experience. So, yeah, that can happen and does happen. What an amazing story. <laughs> Breathtaking. And an honour, as I said earlier, to speak to you. Thank you. You've taught me so much in, in that, that short time. And thank you very much. It's been fabulous to speak to you, Terry. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsten. Nice to speak with you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and a rating in your podcast app. And most importantly, tell a friend about it. Give Us Your Goals is brought to you by online investment platform Best Invest. Best Invest believe that a consistent approach to setting goals allows for a far more comfortable future and that your hard-earned money could work harder through being invested. If you'd like help achieving your financial goals, consider Best Invest, who offer a wide range of investments
free expert coaching, smart planning tools, and competitive pricing. Visit bestinvest.co.uk to learn more. Remember that when you invest, your capital is at risk. Best Invest is a trading name of Evelyn Partners Investment Management Services Limited, authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.